Really quick before we get started, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast or followed the OrthoPlug on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, please do so. And while you're at it, if you can leave a review on the podcast, that would be amazing and would really help us out a lot. Remember the power of your story, your roots, your background, all your experiences are your strength, not your weakness. And we need you here. We need your power. We need your story. We need your skills. And all of us are rooting for you. And so that's always what I tell people, you know, palante, we can do this. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Ortho Plug, the podcast where I get to speak with some of the most successful, inspiring, and really just coolest orthopedic surgeons in the country. And one thing that makes them particularly special is they either come from underrepresented backgrounds or they are actively supporting those that do. This is an incredible episode where I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Natalie Escobar-Green, a PGY4 orthopedic surgery resident at the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program, who has one of the most inspiring stories I have ever heard. From being born and raised in Bucaramanga, Colombia, to moving to the United States as a young adult, where she transitioned from being a farmer, to a nurse, to a medical student, and now the first and only Latina orthopedic resident at Harvard. She is a future global orthoplasty surgeon and just an incredible human being. You're going to love this episode. This is an incredible episode. I'm super, super excited. Um, Everyone listening is uh, honestly very lucky. We have an amazing guest. Dr. Escobar Green is joining us today, PGY4 at Harvard Combined Orthopedic Surgery Residency Program. Um, I am super excited. The story, I've heard so much about this incredible orthopedic surgeon. I'm super excited to learn more and share the story with all of our listeners. So thank you so much, Dr. Escobar Green, for joining us. Thank you. So, um, you know, first, happy Hispanic Heritage Month. I think, you know, we also had, you know, happy National Latinx Physician Day. Um, we know that only about 6%, I think, of all physicians identify as Latinx. And so it's, I think it's very timely to be able to have someone like yourself on the show to be able to share your story, um, continue to inspire. You've inspired so many people already and continue to inspire even more. You know, I like to kind of take it all the way back, go all the way back and hear, you know, where things started. And I know that your story mm-hmm. is particularly impactful. So I'd love to kind of just hear, you know, what brought the young Natalie from Villanueva, Colombia, if I'm not mistaken, to the United States and to Oregon for, for medical school. Absolutely. Jared, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a true honor to be here with you and to be able to share a little bit of my story. I hope it resonates with some people, um, but mostly I just want to um, share a little bit of me so that um, everybody that's listening knows and feels that they can also accomplish um, something similar. So um, you're very close. My dad is from Villanueva, but I was actually born in Bucaramanga. It's a city in the middle of the country. Um, I you know, grew up with mostly my mom, but I, my mom and dad were in the early years, and I have a younger sister. And I attribute a lot of what has brought me here to my family, to my background, to the experiences I had, starting with my grandfather, who's a traditional healer. And he, um, I always witnessed the impact he had on our community, as well as my grandmother, who did a lot of volunteer work. And all of them always had people at home and started exemplifying, you know, caring for our community, the value of being present for, for your people and making sure that you share whatever little or much you have with everybody around you. My younger sister actually was born with trachea malaysia, so her esophagus and her trachea were fused, not fully developed. So we were exposed to um, a lot of you know, medical complexity early on in life. So she had to move to the capital because I grew up in a very, very small town where there was no access to pediatric um, surgeons or pediatric care. 
And so Steffi, my younger sister, Stephanie, who's a news reporter, actually left and um, spent a little bit of time away from us. But I was always around her and going to the hospital with her. Furthermore, my dad had a brain tumor and I helped care for him. And that was actually the, the first time that I thought or that I saw myself as a physician or the potential for becoming a physician. I was nine years old, a neurosurgeon took care of him. Um, and just seeing what he could do, that he could give me my father back, that he could, um, the skills that he had could change our family, our nuclear family, and by extension, our community uh, was very impactful for me. So since that day, since I was about nine and a half years old, I've been telling, you know, out into the world that I want to be a physician. Moving forward, um, I actually went to medical school for a year back home. I won a national scholarship to um, go to medical school. So I did one year of medical school when I graduated at the age of 16 in Colombia. Um, things happened and I could not continue my education back home. So um, throughout that time, I chose a few different jobs. I was a phlebotomist when I was from about 15 to the age of 18. Um, and I helped my mom in her lab. My mom is a medical uh, technologist. So I helped her with that. Um, but I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to come to the States. And um, at the age of 19, I packed two bags and the weight limit was 55 pounds per bag. And I put all my most precious items. One had all my books, including my Harry Potter collection. And then the other one had my clothes and um, I made my way to America. I landed on August 11th of 2006. And I remember clearly um, that day and just walking in and seeing welcome to the United States of America. My goal, I think, um, was to hopefully make it to medicine. And um, from there, it's just catapulted one experience after the other. I, I think you know this, but I landed in America and I became a farmer overnight. So I landed in New Glarus, Wisconsin. And the next day I was in a cattle farm with my steel toe boots and my Wrangler jeans and learning how to ride tractors, how to take care of cattle. Um, because of, I think, my interest in medicine or the fact that I continuously talked about my interest in medicine, my stepdad, who was the person who took me to the farm, introduced me to a veterinarian. So I actually learned a lot of veterinary skills when I was in the farm. So I was the person in charge of the cattle vaccination, preg checking the cattle. So I don't know if you know what that entails, but it's pretty intense. Um, I castrated all the bull calves. I delivered calves. Um, my first orthopedic splint happened in a calf that I helped deliver. And I unfortunately broke its, what I'm assuming was his forearm, you know, both forearm uh, bones. And I applied a splint and the, the cow actually made it. The mom rejected the cow, the calf, but I raised the calf until uh, I could sell it. Um, I did that for about six years. And then as I was pursuing or thinking and dreaming about becoming a physician, my situation was a little different when I first moved here. It was a little bit more complex for international students to go to medical school. Um, but I chose to do nursing as my stepping stone into medicine. So for me, I really wanted to be exposed to patient care. I really wanted to learn about the healthcare system. I wanted to have a way of, you know, just learning um, about what my future was going to look like. So I chose nursing and I think God just knew where I needed to be. And my first job was an orthopedic nurse. So I was an orthopedic nurse um, and then everything else has taken me a little bit further and further. Um, I can keep going, but we can stop there too. If oh you want. my goodness. That, that is absolutely incredible. I didn't know all of those details. Um, and you know, I'm just seeing this picture of somebody who has all of these amazing experiences culminating into what is now an amazing orthopedic surgeon going all the way back to living in Columbia, 
that experience, you know, with your father. I'm so sorry about that. And then traveling, working on a farm, farm, learning vet skills, throwing your first splints on on a calf and (laughs) nursing and orthopedics and all of these things being able to culminate, you being able to take pieces of each of those experiences to kind of build the Dr. Escobar Green, who somebody is a lot of people are going to be lucky to have as their orthopedic surgeon. Um, It's absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people nowadays have more of the untraditional route into medicine. Mm -hmm. um, You know, specifically with orthopedics, people are taking time off, whether it's to do research, whether it's to get other experiences. And Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, it can be uh, discouraging to feel like if you're not going straight through there, you know, there's all these other people are doing that. But um, you know, people like Dr. Uh, Escobar Green have a def- definitely a non-traditional route. And uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Know, I think it's because of that that you're as successful and will continue to be as successful as you are. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. Also, a, a side note, my, I have an eight-month-old. Um, and he actually has, he had very like mild laryngomalacia. So the oh, inspiratory no strider and all of that. So I was very, yes, <laughs> when you it's very that. scary. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like yeah. firstborn and, and my wife and I were like, oh my goodness, like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Congratulations on your, on your firstborn. And is he okay? Yeah. Yeah. He's great. It was very mild. Um, yeah, it's already gone. He doesn't really have any, any, um, he never really had symptoms of it, but you said that and I was like, oh, I, I can resonate. Yes. You know, know, exactly. You know exactly (laughs) what I was talking about. Absolutely. Exactly. So, um, my next question that I have is ultimately you did incredible as a medical student. You know, we talked about some of the reasons why you probably being able to take from the experiences to excel Mm -hmm. at the level that you did, but I'd, I, I'd love for you to kind of expand on some of the things that you felt like made you such a successful orthopedic surgery applicant. Um, you know, not only to get into an ortho, which is competitive, but to get into Harvard. And if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the, if not the first Latina in the Harvard Mm -hmm. combined orthopedic surgery program, Yes. um, which congratulations on that. That is an amazing accomplishment. So what were some of the things that you did in medical school that you felt like, you know, made you stand out? Absolutely. I think two things when you or a few things, when you are looking into medical schools, um, people always talk about there's incredible medical schools all across the country, but you need to find a place that is right for you and that will provide and this goes to residency too. So I think becoming an introspective person and reflecting on what makes you you and what are the things that you need to succeed is one of the first most important things. All of us just want to get into medical school. But if we have the privilege and opportunity to really hone down what makes us us, I think that will just help us be more successful. For me, Oregon, the biggest thing or one of the biggest things, given my background, I really wanted to work with migrant farm workers. Um, I have a passion for working with farmers. I wanted to work with my community. OHSU provided a few things that I was looking for, the opportunity to have elective time, um, maybe a more non-traditional curriculum. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So that was one of the biggest things that kind of drove me towards Oregon. Um, Despite the fact that most people told me there's not a lot of diversity, the city of Portland itself is very homogeneous, but I knew that there was a community out there that that I could impact or, or, or feed of. That's the other part that I like to always mention. I think when I started looking into medical schools and I started writing about myself, I recognized the power of my story 
And that I owe a lot to Nth Dimensions and the mentoring I had at Nth Dimensions, which is a national organization, as you know, that helps um, recruit and matriculate minority physicians that want to pursue competitive specialties. Um, they were the first people that truly made me think uh, and reflect on my story and value the power of my story rather than see it as a weakness. Because I think a lot of us see what you said, the barriers and maybe the delayed uh, process as a barrier rather than some of the things that make us who we are and, and make our story stronger. Once I was in medical school, I think I was very fortunate. I had the opportunity to participate in a lot of things, but um, few things that I like to mention always to people, be involved. Um, if you have a passion for orthopedics and you know that early on, I think exposure is going to be your first thing. So for places that have pro orthopedic programs, getting to know your program director, getting to know the residents. Um, I was always the person who was in the back of the trauma room, listening to trauma rounds. So it takes extra time, but if you can start exposing yourself to orthopedics, to the, to the words, to the knowledge, to the residents, I think that's the first step. It's very scary and very um, daunting to think, oh, I'm going, daunting to think I'm going to go reach out to the program director. But simple things like a small email, you know, this is me. I have a passion for orthopedics. I'm thinking about this. How can I get involved? And they get those emails all the time, but I think it's a good way of starting to put your name out there. Um, the residents are incredible, valuable resource. I think we have to understand that mentor or the mentor-mentee relationship that happens in medical school is very dependent on us. So not expecting a resident or an attending to reach out, but rather you pursuing and being the person initiating and continuing the relationships, I think is very important. Um, the other thing I like to tell people is start um, learning or concise, being condensing and being concise about who you are. So find your elevator pitch. And this is another thing I learned from N Dimensions. What, who you are, what you want people to know, because in those few moments that people get to know you and get to hear about you, you need to tell them who you are and what's important to you. For me, I always want everybody to know that I'm a Colombian, you know, Latina female physician. I want them to know what drives me, which is my community and my family, and what my ideal goals are down the line, which is to do global orthopedics. And so I always find a way of condensing those three things into, you know, a 30 seconds so that people know what is my motivation. Um, I think doing things that research is a fantastic avenue, but do things that interest you. My research was mostly on interpretation services. So, you know, one of my biggest papers that was published in JBJS was on access to orthopedic care for uh, Spanish-speaking patients in California. And that really cemented my passion for wanting to further the care of Latino patients and what I saw was a deficiency and how I can make myself different. So find what you can provide to the field and how you can be a little different. And to me, it was that. It's like I am. I have this set of skills that I can use and translate, and, and then I will try to pursue that. Um, most of my volunteering and projects that I did in medical school were surrounding migrant farm workers. And then because of my passion for orthopedics, it started changing into that. I did a lot of education on, you know, management of um, orthopedic ailments that are non-surgical and treatment of arthritis, uh, non-surgical conservative management, lots of, you know, undiagnosed, underdiagnosed carpal tunnel syndromes, trigger fingers, um, prepatellar bursitis because of people being on their knees, picking strawberries. I don't know if people know this, but picking strawberries all happens on your knees. Um, the children that have congenital deformities that parents never understood. I did a, we did a big um, teaching session with all the parents talking about 
you know, the normal development of children's limbs, because a lot of times parents bring our, their kids to the pediatrician thinking, oh, my kid is entoing or my kid has bowing. And some of these things are normal for children at certain ages. So find what drives you and what is important to you. And those are the things that everybody wanted to hear about during my interview. They, they cared about, you know, you have to study, you have to find your, your study buddies and sit down and, and, you know, grind and learn all the, all the knowledge. But in terms of orthopedics, I think being involved, knowing what drives you, try to, you know, channel that and make your research or focus your research and your experiences on that. Um, and then picking your sub eyes goes back to knowing what you need for a program. Again, for me, I very, I was very, very clear. I want an academic program, one with a global health um, component, and I wanted a program with a large um, children's hospital attached to it or close by. And that's why I went to, <clears throat> excuse me, Washington University. That's that was one of my subjects. I went to UCSF and I came here. And all those three programs have very similar things, which is those three overarching um, themes that I talked about. I I love the way that that you framed this kind of process of getting involved. Cause I think when you get involved, then you can kind of have an, you, your, your interest can kind of be ignited. So then you get involved, mm-hmm. you see what you're interested in, you pursue those interests. And then based off of those interests and based off of the experiences that you've done after pursuing those, then you can develop that kind of elevator pitch about yourself. And um, I'm a part of Nth as well. And at the, uh, the medical student symposium at last year's um, AOS, uh, they were kind of calling on people in the crowd to kind of come up to the mic kind of, you know, with no preparation from us and give a 30 second elevator pitch. And I was one of the people that got called on nice. <laughs> and at this point. I was like a second year medical student and I'm like out of no idea. So I'm like stumbling over being able to find like a concise way, like you say, but I think it's very important and they emphasize that skill. Um, yeah. And so, but again, it all kind of goes back to you, you know, having the exposure and then being able to know your interests and know where your skill sets and passions can kind of fit into the field of orthopedics. Um, and that, that's amazing. And then being able to kind of use all of that to then move forward in the next step with your sub eyes and, um, you know, kind of continue that process after this interview, I'm probably going to like spend some time and just type out a, a 30 second elevator pitch based <laughs> on my interest. Absolutely. Now you're at Harvard fourth year residency. You have like a year and a half left. You're on the tail end. Congratulations <laughs> to that. That's probably Yes, crazy. it's wild. <laughs> oh my goodness. Huge yeah. congratulations. Thank um, you. So how has residency either like aligned with or veered from what you expected it to be when you were coming in? Um, you know, yeah. how has that been? That's a great question. And I think you will get similar answers from all of us that started residency around the same time I started. I never imagined a COVID happening and completely disrupting and changing and, you know, shaping the residency that I've had. So as, you know, a first year, you know, you're going to work hard, you know, you're going to put in your time and intern year, no matter how, how much preparation people give you or how much they tell you, intern year is hard. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of responsibility right off the bat. Our program places a lot of emphasis in the medical component of patient care. And so we are full-blown medicine doctors caring for large numbers of patients in addition to their orthopedic ailments. So it was um, a fascinating, exciting time, but it was a very, very busy time. And at the end of our intern year, COVID happened. And so that I think has changed me as a person, has changed my experience. When COVID happened, 
orthopedics um, at MGH and Brigham volunteered to help care for patients. And it was an incredible um, thing to do from our program. I think all of us were very grateful. And just that example of when we're called upon, we, we, we respond, even though maybe that wasn't primarily people weren't thinking about orthopedics, um, taking care of medicine patients. Um, but particularly for me, <clears throat> there was a large number of Latino and Spanish speaking patients that started being afflicted by COVID. As you know, COVID disproportionately uh, you know, affected most minority patients, in particular, you know, black and brown patients. In, in here in Boston, a lot of the Spanish-speaking community ended up at MGH at the hospital or Brigham. So there was a need for people who spoke Spanish to be able to communicate with the patients and to be able to communicate with the families. So we created, together with like 65 physicians, we created the Spanish language care group. And we deployed ourselves to all the ICUs across MGH and cared for the Spanish-speaking patients. Um, this was an incredible time in my career. I met so many physicians like me, um, people that I didn't know existed from multiple specialties. Um, there were some people were, you know, born in uh, Spanish-speaking countries. Some people learned Spanish, but most of us were Latino physicians. And this was the opportunity for us to come together, find a collective voice, and really advocate for our community. Um, JR, I had some of the most um, incredible conversations with families, with patients, with people abroad. I had some of the saddest and most, you know, life altering and touching moments during that time because I had to deliver a lot of bad news in a short period of time. There was one night I remember my husband always remembers the story too. I was on call, which meant that if they needed to deliver bad news over the phone, I was the person who would FaceTime the families and talk to them. And that night I had to deliver four, you know, news of deaths to four families. And then I came back to the bed and, and he was like, you, you know what you're doing, right? Like you are just delivering bad news after bad news after bad news. And so that, that became, I think, just something that has really changed my perspective that had really, that made me value the power of us being in these positions, the privilege of being able to communicate with patients and just honor the fact that like me, we need many more people to continue to do this work so that we are never left in these situations where families or patients are at a loss uh, because they can't understand each other. Um, so that was, that was transformative for me. That made me really cement my decision. Um, it made me recognize how important I was the per my language skills and how important it is to continue to push for better um, interpretation and communication for patients. Um, and then it helped us find our collective voice at, at MGH. And that I think was something that we're very proud of. I think it, it helped all of us um, just be proud of our heritage, be proud of who we are and, and stick together and try to continue to work together to better the healthcare of our patients. Um, so second year was different because it was a little bit altered by COVID. But because I had that experience, I think I grew a lot as a person. I grew a lot as a physician. And then I it just ignited my um, passion for wanting to be the best I could be, to work as hard as I could, and to find what is it that I need to do to, to provide the care that I need to provide. Um, it's funny because when you say what has changed, I came in thinking I was going to be a pediatric spine surgeon. That was where most of my research was. That's what I love. I love children. I love taking care of young people. 
I see a big role in us, you know, affecting life at a you know early age so that hopefully we can transform, you know, like I said, their nuclear families and communities at large. Um, but I was exposed to arthroplasty as a second year. I had a fantastic mentor. He does incredible work. And I saw day in and day out just the incredible results from, you know, restoring function and mobility to patients, you know, younger patients. But when I say younger, more in, you know, as you can do joint replacements as early as, you know, in their 20s for patients with dysplasias. But, you know, also our abuelitas who abuelitas are dear and near to my heart. Um, so that I think has been something that's been interesting. I try to stay, just take that out of my brain and be like, no, I'm, I'm meant to do pediatrics. So I always tell people, no matter what you think you're coming in, just be open and embrace the opportunities and the experiences because you don't know. You don't know how you're going to find or when you're going to find that thing that you that is your vehicle. Um, so I always say that I'm like, this is my vehicle to affect, you know, social justice, to cause change. And I think um, arthroplasty has been one of the biggest surprises for me. I fell in love with the field. And then I had exposure after, you know, an experience after experience, I went to Guatemala with one of my biggest mentors, the one and only Dr. Antonia Chen, who's a world renowned, you know, arthroplasty surgeon. And we did close to 71 knees um, in Guatemalan patients. Um, and that moment just cemented my love for, for the field, the results. Um, I could see just the uh, ripple effect that this will have in these communities, just these all these younger and middle-aged and older um, adults that were afflicted by um, arthritis and pain and inability to work. And I know that this is just going to change um, these communities for the better. And so that's been a, a great surprise for me. I fell in love with that field. I found my passion. I found my way. I think global orthopedics and translating arthroplasty into the global, you know, field and platform is a, is a good way to do what I want to do. Um, it's more reproducible. And I think the teaching is a little bit more, uh, more accessible and the implants are potentially more accessible to patients all over the world. So I'm hoping to do that and to be able to, to do that. Um, other things that are surprising in residency, I think, um, you try or people tell you try to go through this process and remain whole and you need to find the people that are going to keep you whole and are going to keep you you or that are going to feed your soul so for me i think it's i always tell people find what makes you find your what drives you and find your people early and stick to them and and embrace them hard because this is the thing that you need to go back to every day to make sure that you stay true to yourself and stay true to your mission. So for me, it's my community. The Latino community is one of my biggest driving forces and my family. So staying close to the Latino community, going out to get, even when I'm feeling down, I go down to Eastie and I get my arepas and I go to the Colombian restaurant and I talk to my people because I need to be reminded of why I'm doing this and what this means to me and the people around me. Um, stay close to your family, stay close to your friends, um, find opportunities to serve the community that you want to serve, find opportunities to mentor, to talk to people that were in your same shoes a few years, you know, a few years back, because that that's what's going to feed us. That's what's going to keep us going and keep us motivated. So I always tell people that in res residence is hard, but you have to stay true to yourself if you can. And the only way to do that is remember your purpose, stay true to, you know, your, your drive and your mission and go back to it often. And then, um, keep your village close because that's, that's the only way we go through this process and remain whole. Throughout all of this, this entire interview, I have definitely heard a lot of the 
always coming back to the purpose and your mission. And, you know, it's it seems like it's so clear for you and the way that you've been able to express it kind of shows that clarity and shows how you have been coming back, you know, time and time again to this is the community that I am called to serve. This is what I'm called to do. And, you know, the way that you speak about it now just, you know, emphasizes that this is something that throughout these four four years, you've been able to kind of do that over and over again. And even as things change, you know, instead of the pediatric specialty, you know, going into to joints, I saw I saw your Instagram post. Uh, I think it was yesterday, the the global arthroplasty, uh, you know, surgeon that, that you're going to become. Um, good luck throughout the fellowship match. I'm sure you're going to do you. absolutely incredible. Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll end up where I need to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, having that purpose and that continued you, you, to have the the why, you know, almost like plastered wherever you're at and coming back to it and then having the support system, having that village close, um, I think is something that I try to do that for in medical school and because medical school can be mm-hmm. tough for me at times. It's um, very hard. Yes. Yeah. And it's encouraging to know that that same process is going to be just, you know, equally important, if not more when you're in residency. And Jared, well, you said, you know, medical school is all the, this, all these stages are very hard. This is, I go through moments where I constantly think, why me? How can I think that I can do this? They probably made a mistake. They're probably over, you know, people think people will say to you, oh, you're amazing or you're this or you're that. And yourself, you have to remind yourself there are going to be days that you don't feel amazing, that you have bad days. And it's not just, it's everybody. I talk to so many people and day in and day out, you feel like a terrible surgeon one day and then you feel like an amazing surgeon the next day. And you don't operate the same with everybody. And that is normal. That is part of the process. Some people find a way of just, you know, incentivizing you and making you look amazing. They position you in the best place for the surgery. Some people don't have that skill and then that's okay. But we always think it's me. I, it's probably me who can't do this is I'm sure every other medical student can do this, or I'm sure every other resident is able to do this. That's not true. I think all of us need to forgive ourselves, be patient with ourselves. When you were saying that, that's the one thing that I try to be so good at these last couple of years. Cause I, I think as you gain more responsibility, you become harder on yourself and the, the risk of making mistakes that are, are, are more costly, you know, things are just, the, everything changes, right? Everything becomes a little, just a little bit more, um, um, challenging. And so I think remembering that the more responsibility they give me, the more the opportunity that I have of making a mistake that can be very dangerous for a patient. And so that also is something that motivates me. You know, once you go in the operating room and attendings are expecting you as a fourth year to know how to do the surgery, you better know how to do the surgery. So you better know and review your anatomy because once they give you that, you know, opportunity to do the surgery, remember who's behind, you know, all those drapes. This is someone's mom, this is someone's grandma. So that's always what I keep in mind. It's like, you know, I always have a minute before I start a surgery. I'm like, remember I go, when I'm scrubbing, I always go through the surgery in my head. So I always tell this is an advice I give to people is like, try to say it out loud, tell it to your, you know, when you're driving in, you know, incision, go to fascia, down to fascia. I'm going to make a cut. Then I'm going to ask for this. Then I'm going to, I'm going to see this muscle, that muscle. I'm going to retract these two. What am I looking for? Which nerve am I worried about? And I do that. And I am someone who speaks a lot in surgery and maybe attendees don't love that all the time, but I want them to know that I know where I am because nobody knows what you know, unless you show them your pre-op plan or unless you 
are able to vocalize it. And I do that as a way for me, it's just therapy as well to like go through it. And it calms my anxiety to know, I know exactly what I'm doing. And when I'm in a pickle, they'll be able to help me out. But those are all the things like find ways of um, knowing yourself and knowing what makes you anxious or what makes you doubt yourself and then target those big. So for me, it was that it's like, are they going to trust me? Are they going to know exactly what I know? So I found ways of, I always make a PowerPoint. I always come with the very detailed pre-op plans. And then I always say it out loud because I'm like, you know, this, remember that you're not, you know, as long as I don't make a terrible mistake or something that's going to injure a patient, then that's how I found ways of forgiving myself and being kind to myself. Oh, th- thank you so much for sharing that because I think it can be very hard throughout this journey of forgiving yourself, feeling like, you know, you're not like everybody else is doing well and you're the only one that's not. And, mm-hmm. you know, it can be easy to kind of close yourself off in a closet and start having those thoughts circulating. But to hear somebody who has reached the levels of success that you have, you know, expressed that they have also experienced those doubts, those feelings of, you know, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right thing? Yes. You know, is is very yes. impactful. And it's also I love how you put it where, you know, to to know what makes you get into those feelings of doubt or anxiety Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. to start to figure out ways that you can combat that and then make that part of not your routine. Um, I'm going to take that because that's, that's, I think that's a really good point because there's definitely some, some things in life moves so fast in this process that I can come home and I can just feel anxious and I could not really think about like why I'm feeling anxious or why I feel like I'm not enough. And I just, I just feel it, but I don't actually try to get to the root. But when you get to the root, then you can figure out how to address it. Absolutely. Is that portion. And I think um, the other thing that I was thinking about when we were talking is um, the, the one thing about residency that is surprising or you, I thought, Oh, the day that I graduate, people will take me seriously. Or the day that I walk into Harvard and I have a Harvard orthopedic, you know, uh, uh, white coat, people are going to be like, of course. Well, no, (laughs) the world is still the world and you are still going to be seen as the minority person who's confused for everything else, but the doctor and those microaggressions, there are days that, you know, you're strong enough to, and you can brush them off. But the process of residency is so tiring that you're underslept, underfed, continuously doubt by everybody. And that extra five minutes that it takes for every interaction that I have to start proving myself can be really challenging and, and daunting. And it can just take a toll on you. So I think reflecting on that and finding people like you that have gone through this. So I always, I've been lucky. I have seniors that um, were similar in similar situations that have shared similar stories. So you need to find people that have gone through similar things and um, just someone that you can just say, Hey, this is ridiculous. And you just, you don't even have to tell the whole story, right? Like, you know, exactly what you're talking about. So I think that's important to have those people in your corner because that's been one of the most surprising things. And I asked my mentor the other day and she said, I hate to break it to you, Natalie. It's just, it's just not going to change. It's just for, for the long, forever, I think we're going to potentially run into people that is, are, are not going to assume that we're the doctor, that for X, Y, and Z, either you're a woman, you're a minority, you look young, you, it happens to everybody. But some, at some point, people might doubt who you are and you might spend a lot of your energy proving yourself. And it's just learning to remember that that's unfortunately part of the process and that's why we're doing this. We're going to change it so that more and more people are exposed to people like us and then to be available for everybody when those days happen 
you know, shoot me a page, shoot me a text, whatever it is so that you know, hey, I got you. I've been there. I know exactly how you feel. And some days is hard. Some days are harder than others. Yeah. Having, having that village close for those experiences yes. is important. And again, hearing that, you know, people like yourself have experienced it. Hopefully the people listening, if they, um, you know, do experience it, which like you said, is likely that they'll experience some form of microaggression, mm-hmm. especially if they mm-hmm. are coming into orthopedics as an underrepresented student, you know, that they're not the only person experiencing this, that, you know, they can reach out to people and have those conversations. Like I already know what yeah. you're talking about. That's happened to me too. And then <laughs> exactly. you can kind of find solace in that. Um, that's totally. amazing. So I have one final question for you, and it you know it kind of goes back into the fact that you are towards the end of your residency, um, which means that you have either you know that you've probably mentored tons of medical students, you've seen a lot of medical students come through mm-hmm. doing sub eyes and internships and all of those kind of things. So I'd love to hear from your perspective as somebody who is helping make some decisions into who comes in and who does mm-hmm. not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what have you seen from some of the more standout applicants? Um, what, what what have been some of the characteristics or some of the things that some of these medical students do where you and other residents or other faculty are like, this is what we love. This is what we want to come and join our program. Absolutely. Um, I think most one of the biggest things that I've noticed is authenticity. So people being very authentic of who they are. Um, has been incredibly refreshing for me. And that's that comes across in many different ways, you know, people that know themselves and that are proud of who they are. And, and um, that, that just gives a different level of confidence when people come. So that's the first thing that I notice sometimes of people, how genuine and authentic they are. Um, some of the biggest things you can do that I always tell people is you have to be prepared. You have to know where you're coming. So people that have read the website that know what rotations we are on, that know how many residents we have, that know how many hospitals we go to. That gives me an understanding that you took the time to at least read about our program. But I have many sub that are here and they're like, and how many this? And, and I know we ask, like, do you have questions? But I expect your questions to be more in depth about the experience. And maybe after reading, then you can tailor those questions, not about the general things that can be found on a website. So I always say, err on the side of being more prepared, knowing physicians' names. That's what I did. I remember when I came here, I read the bios on the attendings I was going to work on with the residents as well, just to have an understanding of who they were. And so they knew that I took the extra step to get to know the program. I love people that ask me for um, expectations and goals. I always have expectations and goals, and I think it's unfair of us to just expect things from people and not tell them and communicate that. It happens a lot, JR, so you'll see a lot of places won't have a set of delineated goals for you. But I think if they don't have them, then you go and say, hey, I'm coming here as a sub. These are my goals I expect to match. What are your expectations of me? Because I would like to be able to match those. And then if we can move past that, great. But that is one thing. Um, going back to that is also being prepared, right? Like knowing where, knowing where you need to be, being on time. These sound like simple things they are, but this happens all the time. You can, I always made sure that I was there before the residents. And lately I'm always there and I'm a senior. I'm always there before the sub eyes. And it's surprising to me because now that I want you to like prove to me that you can wake up early, but it just gives me a different sense of 
you're hustling to get here. You know, you're trying to trying to make sure that the team can run smoothly, that you can be there and available for, for things. So I appreciate a sabai or someone that, that is around us that has the, the um, you know, thought process of, oh, I'm going to come in early and see what I, how I can help. Sometimes there's not a lot to do, but I think that's one of the things. Um, preparedness comes with learning the codes, getting bringing your own laptop, little things like that. I'm noticing just because some people expect to use the computers for the residents. And we have a large residency. We have 60 residents of one you know room. Sometimes we have 13, 14 people. If you expect to be using the computer, then you might not have the opportunity to use a computer and then you won't be as helpful. So having your own laptop, having your own scissors, having your own pens, all these things go a long way. And it shows me that you're thinking ahead of how you can be um, helpful along with, you know, that's the first area of like being prepared for your sub. I think it's very important and knowing the program, knowing the residents and being prepared as well as your anatomy, like trying to, I think the one expectation I have of people is to understand anatomy. I don't need everybody to be, you know, proficient in orthopedics, but some orthopedics is incredibly helpful. This new, this round of sub eyes that we've had, I've actually been super surprised and happily surprised about their orthopedic knowledge. I think more and more people are exposing themselves to orthopedics early in their um, programs. And so they're coming in with a little bit more knowledge, which I think is nice. It just, it helps so we can build upon those skills for you. Um, the second component um, after that is there are things that are unteachable and that is unfortunate, but there are things to understand like your place to anticipate. Um, I always tell people err on the side of professionalism and that might be just for me. Some people are very laid back. Some people are, you know, but I have to say this minorities, minority women, we cannot run the risk of coming across too friendly, too unprofessional, too jokey. I don't like, you know, happy faces on, on emails, like be professional, Dr. So-and-so. And then if they allow you to become more comfortable, that's one thing, but interjecting conversations, putting your opinion, oh, giving opinions on physicians or other residents or other surgeries. Like I, I just don't think that, that that's the place. And so I always pay attention to that, like who's interjecting in conversation and who's being just incredibly friendly. I want to be friendly with people. I, I love the, I am a friendly person, but there is a place and a time. And I always want to, I'm always paying attention to those things. Um, uh, other things, I think a lot that have, what I can tell you that we've been talking a lot about, um, a lot of sub will come in and they're focused on making, you know, FaceTime with the attendings. And that is one component. We want to get you to be in front of the attendings, but do not forget the intern and the person who's in the trenches working day in and day out. If you can be helpful to them and we hear that in our meetings, that goes such a long way. If, I, if they're like, you know what, so-and-so consult came in, they went, I love when the sub is like, they hear the consult and they're like, I'll go see it. I'll go start rolling this blend. I'll go start doing this. You know, what do you need? They, I come back and the note is prepped. And I'm like, thank you. Like these are little things that just are helpful and get me and show me that you're anticipating that you want to be there for the team. Um, and those go a long way. So those are the things I, that happened to me as an intern that somebody thought that I was somebody else and they made a terrible comment, um, assuming that I was not a resident or a physician or nothing at all. And I can tell you that person did not get an interview because we are not going to tolerate any type of, you know, um, behavior like that. So I think just recognizing that you're, I, I love when people tell me their opinions and what they think about things, but just make sure you do it in a safe environment where maybe 
you know, you just have to recognize that you are in a, in a group that's very diverse that might not share all your opinions. So I think it's not the time to also talk about politics and religion. And um, unless something unfair is being done, I expect you to speak up, but otherwise, um, no. And then um, let me think of other, I, you know, people always ask me like research and of course I want you to know how to do a project. And, um, but some people talk to me about their research projects and I look at their uh, their CVs and I ask if you are putting things in your CV, you better know what, what you did in that project. But so many people I talk to and I read the CVs so that we get all the CVs from Savais and I read them and I will ask them, I'll be like, Hey, oh, you wrote that paper and blah, blah, blah. Like tell me more about it. And I expect you to be able to, to speak about your project. And I, I want to learn about your project and who you are. And so I pay a lot of attention to that. And going back, I pay a lot of attention to the elevator pitch because I want to know who you are. One thing that I need to say, everybody, everybody now says that they want to be global surgeons. And that has to have a specific meaning. And you need to tell me specifically what you want to accomplish with your global surgery or global surgery goals. Because Everybody says that to me. And I don't know if it's because they know I like, I, I'm passionate about global surgery. They know I've traveled abroad. I, I don't know if because I'm Colombian, but people always say that to me. And more often than not, the rationale for wanting to do surgery is very mission-like and very mission-driven. And um, I just hope that, that, that you are thoughtful in when you talk about your interests, why you want to do them and recognize that sometimes global surgery can be hurtful and sometimes it can be helpful. So um, just remembering that people always say that, especially for Harvard. Oh, I love the medicine component. I love that you guys do medicine. Everybody says that to us, but nobody really knows what that means. And so I like to, I always say, Oh, expand on that. And so don't be surprised if people question your, your, what you're saying. Um, and so being thoughtful about what you're sharing with people, um, I think it's important. Those are the, those are the biggest things. Otherwise, you know, just be adaptable, be friendly. Um, do not, do not piss off the nurses. Like I always say that I, it sounds silly, but people just come into the operating rooms. Like they own the operating rooms. Like you are a, a guest. I always remind people of that. Remember you're a guest here. I am still a guest in some wars. So nobody do not expect people to be opening gloves for you or have things available for you or grabbing things. Um, just remember to be respectful. Everybody has a role, a job. And so I always tell people for me, it goes a long way when I can see a sabai interacting with um, the nurses, the staff transport in a kind, you know, generous manner and, um, and helpful. I think that that goes a long way. That went a long way for me, JR. The nurses, when I rotated here, wrote an, a letter on my behalf to our, to um, one of our uh, chief uh, surgeons. So I think it goes a long way if you have the backing of people that are going to work with you. And the last thing I always say, I'm like, remember, this is for the long haul. You're not just interviewing for a program. You are showcasing yourself to the world as the orthopedist you want to become. So I always say every interaction, every email, every conversation, remember that you are showing people who you are and what kind of physician you're going to be. So for me, every time I talk to you from simple things, is like your presentation in terms of how you're you know, showing yourself to the world, your conversation, the, the words you choose to, to use, your emails are showing me the kind of surgeon that you're going to be. And I think that goes a long way. So I've always said that I'm like, use this opportunity to write a simple email or use it as your opportunity to tell the world or tell that person that you're communicating with. This is how I want you to envision me because this is the surgeon that I'm going to become. And this is what I'm showing you. 
Um, so I always keep that in mind in the ORs that the nurses are going to be our future patients. I have people that call me all the time. Their kids fell. They send me their x-rays. Their father fell. They send me the x-rays. They call me, Natalie, where should I go? What should I do? Because I've spent the time as, you know, early on showing people, these are the little things I'm doing to become the surgeon that I want you to trust. So my two cents. Oh, that, uh, that was a dollar, <laughs> more than a dollar. That was amazing. You're awesome. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, you know, a few just highlights, you know, the authenticity, I think I, I hear a lot, whether it's being authentic about knowing yourself, having your elevator pitch, and also like being authentic about your interests. Mm -hmm. and, you know, don't pitch things on your CV unless it's real. Don't say that you want to do global medicine unless it's real. Mm -hmm. Just being like an authentic human exactly. being. And then preparation. You know, I, I hear that all the time, too. And I, I appreciate you for highlighting it, the different ways that we can be prepared, whether it's being prepared by knowing the program, knowing the residents and the faculty that we'll be working with, or whether it's being prepared by being able to observe and see, you know, where the splint supplies is, what's the code to this, let me make sure I have my laptop, let me figure out how I can kind of insert myself and help in the most appropriate ways. Um, mm -hmm. And then I love the the last point of just like every you know, interaction every moment when you're mm -hmm. on these sub eyes, you know, not like you're showing who you're going to be as a surgeon. And you're also like training those skills. You're training, mm -hmm. you know, like, are, does it take you, does it usually take you two days to respond to an email? You know, well, like it probably shouldn't. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, start to train that because you're going to, you want to become, you know, that type of orthopedic surgeon, that type of, you know, physician, colleague, mentor, all of those kind of things. Um, and so that was very inspiring for you to be able to kind of talk about that the way that you did. Uh, oh, just absolutely incredible. I know you have already given so many, so many pearls of wisdom. <laughs> this has been one of the most impactful, inspiring conversations I've ever had. Oh, dear. You're uh, so kind. Any... <laughs> it's, it's, it is genuine. And I, I, I hope it sounds authentic because it is. Of um, course it does. Because do you you're any... amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Natalie. Do you have any final like uh, words of wisdom, final thoughts, final anything um for any of the yeah. listeners there's probably going to be a young latina uh future orthopedic <laughs> surgery applicant listening to you inspired by you wanting to be you um any final words for for her for anybody else yeah i always say um remember the power of your story your roots your background all your experiences are your strength not your weakness and we need you here. We need your power. We need your story. We need your skills. And all of us are rooting for you. And so that's always what I tell people, you know, palante, we can do this. Um, we, there's a big community behind all of us, um, older, younger in the middle and together, I think is the way that we're going to, you know, really transform this, um, this field. I believe that, you know, diversifying our field, is the only way to provide, you know, culturally competent care to our patients. And so I feel strongly about, you know, training the next generation, inspiring the next generation and remember where we came from and that's what's going to keep us going. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Cannot write a script better than <laughs> these words that we've been giving. So, <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so, so much again. Um, you know, I, again, I can only imagine how busy you are and we're so grateful for your time. For our listeners, continue to stay plugged in because we're going to continue to bring incredible guests just like Dr. Escobar Green. So until the next one, see you guys later. Another quick reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, like, and comment on the podcast. It really helps us out a lot. 
see you guys in the next one